Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. You're listening to the EFG podcast and my name is Mo Zafsal, Chief Investment Officer for uh, EFG. So today we have our uh, annual guest, Jeff DeGraf uh, from Runmac. Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Mo. It's always great to be with you. Yeah, I'm just, uh, we, were, we were going through the agenda uh a couple of weeks ago and uh, and we'll say oh you know isn't it time for jeff to come on and uh, there and behold i think it's pretty much to the day a year ago uh, that you're on last time so but uh it's uh, always a real pleasure to to have you on and always appreciate uh the time you 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 give us um so jeff let's go kind of straight into the the markets we're entering into the q4 we're entering into the seasonally better period for uh, for stock markets, uh, you know, what are your latest thoughts? Well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, right? Seasonality is just so consistent here. Um, there's really four months that dominate this seasonal bias from a median perspective. And those are November, December, January, with the outlier being July. And, um, you know, the nice part is that seasonality has that sequence to it from November, December, January. Um, you know, if you if you played it like a blackjack hand every single time uh, the same way, uh, it's going to work to your advantage. And so seasonality for us is never, you know, the end all be all. It's probably the seventh or eighth factor that we look at. But certainly when we have oversold conditions, when we're still in an uptrend, um, when we have some sentiment shifts and the seasonality is also at our back, uh, it's a you know it's a pretty bullish combination of things to to look at for the end of the year, particularly as we're getting the sense that some of the sentiment is is starting to fray at the edges. And uh, there there are reasons to be concerned, yields being one of those. But I think tactically, uh, we still want to be tilting more towards the positive side than the negative side into year end. And um, seasonality has been unbelievably accurate over this six month period. Uh, Certainly, I had some of my doubts about kind of September being sort of the fourth. I think it's a fourth negative month in a row, uh, yeah. you know, every year. Which is uh, statistically, you're ending up into some really sort of shaky ground. But um, um, it always seems to work, and it certainly worked this summer. It, it is. It's just one of those things. I think you have to play it the same way every year and be thinking about it again. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go from bearish to bullish call just because of seasonality, but leaning into uh, the seasonal trends uh, tends to be important. And, you know, the other part of that, there's that old saying, sell in May and go away. You know, the reality is that that, that's, it's a little premature. Maybe it's just somebody who wanted to take the summer off that invented that. But if you, if you stay with equities through July, you're actually in a pretty good spot. You can start to then reduce your exposure August, September, uh, and then look at starting to re- uh, re-enter the market or get a little bit more aggressive towards the, the tail end of October. So that played out pretty well this year as well. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, it's so surprisingly uh, how mechanically it is. Um, in terms of obviously, it is you, you mentioned it's the seventh or eighth factor that you look at. What are the other um, factors that are kind of particularly critical at this point? Well, you know, it's really interesting. In, in our work is the beginning of the year. In fact, today uh, we, we have what we call our market cycle clock and we update that uh, at the beginning of every single month. And really it's it, the idea is that you were juxtaposing the inflation data with the uh, with the growth data. And there's several different factors that go into that. But this is the, the one year anniversary or officially the 13th month that our market cycle clock has been in a bullish zone. Uh, and that's the zone where inflation and growth are really in 
the bottom third of historical readings going all the way back to the 1940s. Um, and it's a little, uh, you know, maybe a, a little bit of a head scratcher for people because the inflation data has been in our work better than what the headline inflation has been. A lot of that is commodity related as we, you know, look at uh, sort of a diffusion index of what's happening on the commodity side. But it's been more right than wrong. And I think the, the good news here is we're, we're still in a bullish zone for equities in our market cycle clock. Um, the the bad news or the shift that we've seen is that when we're in this zone historically, we know what sectors should do well. They tend to be very cyclically oriented. The defensive sectors don't tend to do that well. It's really a very contrarian type of call. And that worked uh, extraordinarily well for the first half of 2023. Uh, the back half has been a little bit more challenging. And what we've seen here is that when we align the sector performance with various macro factors, oil, interest rates, et cetera, uh, we find that the interest rate sensitivity is a far bigger driver today and really started in about August uh, than anything we saw at the beginning of the month. So, you know, coincidentally, we also saw real yields punch through that 2.5% uh, level here in the U.S. And for whatever reason, that seems to be a pretty good uh, pretty good line in the sand for equity markets. So um, while our market cycle clock is bullish, the yield impact model and what we're seeing from sensitivities is saying that yields are becoming an ever increasing uh, bearish component to this tape. And I think that's going to be important. The other part of that, um, you know, without getting a little too technical here, is that there's a convexity to it. What does that mean? Well, you know, at 2.5% on a real yield, there might be a one for one relationship for every, you know, 100 basis points, this goes up, the S&P goes down 25 basis points or something like that. Um, the convexity starts to work against equities for every 100 basis points in real yields, you end up with, say, a 200 basis point move in equities. So it becomes ever more uh, important as you go higher, really, as you get towards that 275, 3% level. So I think that's going to be really important. If there's something bearish for 2024, I do think it's the impact that these yields can have. Uh, so we're watching that very, very carefully because the market has shifted in terms of its dynamic of what it cares about more. Uh, and obviously, we're getting to this point where uh, those yields are starting to create more of a dark cloud for for equities here. So just maybe sort of delve into that a little bit more. Obviously, 10-year treasuries, you know, when I was looking at the charts, whenever it whenever it got through 450, to me, it was wiggling out a five-handle. It was one of those things, just like a magnet. It draws you up. Um, obviously, we five, we've we inflected back off pretty aggressively, I guess, um, since that volatility, as we know, in in treasuries and long days treasuries is is actually insane at the moment. I, yeah. You know, the move indices are at levels, actually consistently high levels that we'd never see necessarily out the VIX, uh, which yeah, is something I find that quite uh, quite fascinating. What do you think is are the key narrative narratives that are driving that 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 move to 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 the five percent ten year treasury level? Well, I think the you know structural deficits that the, the U.S. is running now, that's not unique around the globe, but certainly, you know, it seems to be, um, you know, something that we're dealing with now that is in excess of what we've seen historically. I also think, and, and this is uh, a little less esoteric, but I think it's important, is that we're, we're dealing with uh, clearly a Bank of Japan uh, regime that is looking at uh, monetary policy and yield curve control and quantitative easing and some of these 
um, some of these metrics that they really almost invented in in modern day central bank banking that have been with us for you know over a decade. You could make the case that they've been with us for you know the entirety of our career, um, and that's starting to shift now. And so you know the question is is how much demand was Japan creating globally uh, in terms of uh, demand for uh, foreign securities, particularly fixed income, uh, so that they could keep the uh, the pressure on the on the yen and and clearly uh, suppress their own rates. Um, if that's starting to unwind, we don't really know how big of an impact that was. It, it might be so big that we don't even see it. And so I think that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that we have a shift in the dynamic of how uh, central bank policies were run globally, and that's starting to to change a little bit. Um, the other part of, of of this, which I think is interesting, uh, has not been our call, and maybe it will prove to be right. And again, we wouldn't take a victory lap because it's not been our call. But the base formation, really, where we broke out uh, through that four four and a quarter percent level back in uh, back in August, that's set up for a move. Um, if you do a vertical count, as high as four five forty on the ten year yield. So you know that would imply another roughly sixty basis points from where we are here. I'm hoping we don't do that. I think that that would be really uh, problematic for equities. But um, certainly the technical levels can support that. I'm more in the camp that in the near term, given sentiment, that we can actually get a consolidation in these yields, maybe back to four fifty or so. Uh, but I do worry that there's that technical account out there. Uh, as high as 540. And if that's the case, and we do that, say, in the first quarter or second quarter of next year, uh, I think that's going to be more detrimental for stocks. Just to delve into the political situation just for a second and, and the structural deficit story, and we'll kind of loop back to uh, to the indices in a second. Um, um, obviously, from from here, you know, we saw the whole Liz Truss situation that we had in the UK and how the UK bond vigilantes had sort of come in and you know destroyed her policies that she wanted to impart. And, of course, we had to have a new chancellor and a new government coming in that kind of calmed the situation. Um, uh, and, and the sort of the word bond vigilantes is now kind of, you know, doing the rounds again uh, after being sort of locked away for a good sort of 20, 30 years or so. Um, right. But what's your, what's your sense in the U.S.? Um, coming into uh, the U.S. election cycle, how an important factor is it for people in terms of uh, deficits? And, and you know, just looking at the recent numbers of Trump continues to kind of power ahead <laughs> in terms of his influence. And uh, someone asked me today what the markets would do if Trump came back into power. And I was like, well, okay, we might solve Russia-Ukraine pretty quickly. Um, and that'd be you know pretty poor maybe for oil price and commodity prices. They, they could collapse very quickly if if suddenly there was a ceasefire and, and that improved. And then Trump would probably, although it hasn't been his history, would go after the deficits because that seems to be a a, a bigger issue for for many people in the U.S. now. Well, there's this uh, this contentious group right on the on the right. Um, that does care about the the deficit more than I think the centrists and certainly the the left does. Um, how that's working its way in through the fabric is still just as uh, you know, U.S. citizens sitting here um, hasn't really played that much. It doesn't seem to be a big a big talking point. Now, I think if you have if we're right and part of this uh, this uh, 
that the, these higher yields are a byproduct of uh, these fiscal policies, then obviously the impact that that has on being able to move, you know, own a, a bigger house or whatever the case may be, um, even, you know, job creation, which so far that's held up, if that starts to hit the uh, the everyday person, then, you know, that will become a source of 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 trouble and angst and, and obviously be more influential for the election. I think if you were to do it right here, right now, I don't think that the rates have been high enough long enough because the job creation is still solid enough uh, that it would it would have a big impact. Now, these rates, you know, 12 months out, we know that there's a lag. Uh, these rates 12 months out might be hitting exactly uh, at the wrong time for President Biden, um, you know, to uh, to try to keep the office. So it will be interesting. But I think the way that those real rates translate into jobs and into um, sort of the misery index, if you will, I think will be far more important when the election comes than just uh, where those deficits are today. People generally, and I think Dick Cheney said it best, deficits don't matter. They clearly matter. But I think to the everyday person, they only matter to the extent that they start to to pinch out or crowd out uh their ability to you know conduct their daily lives. Mm. No, absolutely. The economy is so so strong or has been strong, and people are in jobs, you know. And um, you know, as it's a, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is absolutely amazing. You know, uh, you know, I I read many pieces during the COVID period, uh, talking about the post economic period after you know Spanish flu and 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 different pandemics. And they all kind of said the same thing, is that coming out, the economies are so strong and so good for a prolonged period of time. Um, and it's kind of playing in the same way. You, you know, it is it is quite amazing. You know, I think all of, you know, uh, all of those pieces we all read, right, uh, at the time. And they're all saying one thing. It was great for economic growth and it kind of sparked something in human psychology or or the economy they just kept things going for a very long time for decades in some cases you know the economy kept on growing i mean you had the roaring 20s right so yeah. I, I can i can give you a microcosm a personal microcosm of that um i i lived and worked down in lower manhattan during 9 11 yeah. uh, right across the street from the trade center and our our apartment building was two blocks away so we you know we had the full force of that upon us um and in fact our building we had to vacate the building so i left and worked out of chicago for about a month uh after 9 11 and then came back and so i i didn't have the i was not immersed in the uh, you know, kind of the cultural experience of the post 9-11 world with New Yorkers for about a month and then came back um, and I was amazed. So this would have been, uh, you know, in in sort of uh, early to mid-October. And I mean, every night people were going out. It was dinners. It was drinks. It was I mean, it was it was the roaring 20s in Manhattan. And that was not happening in Chicago. It was not happening in LA. It was not happening in other areas of the country. Uh, but when I got back to New York, it was amazing how people were kind of just saying, hey, you know, life is short, who knows, let's go. And uh, I think this, uh, the, you know, the, the, the COVID experience probably uh, did that in mass. Uh, but certainly, I, I remember that uh, that transformation, kind of in the social fabric of what was going on. So, I, I think you've got a very important point there. Mm. Yeah, no, certainly very, very interesting. And so far, it's playing to that trend. So, uh, you know, let's let, let's see how it how it breaks. Now, um, 
one of the experiences we had in certainly in the UK is as bond yield sold off, the currency sold off as well. And in looking at the dollar today, you know, and uh, you know, sometimes it's good to kind of stand back and you say, well, we had 500 plus basis points of increases over this period. A dollar's kind of done nothing. <laughs> if I, if I, obviously there was a lot of forward movement ahead of that expectations, but actually when it came to the rate hikes, the dollar itself is kind of marginally up. Um, is there, and, and then linking it into deficits, you know, high deficits are usually not good for the currency. Um, uh, is this something that is kind of, in your work at least anyway, suggesting that we should be getting ready for a weaker dollar, like a structurally weaker dollar, given some of these challenges on, 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 on long-term rates and deficits? Well, the the one thing that really jumps out to me is sentiment. The, there's there's a fairly high degree of bullish sentiment on the dollar, and um, and obviously you're seeing just the opposite. I think there's twenty percent bulls in terms of Japanese yen right here. Now that chart, you know, the yen chart is not a chart that I would be um, buying hand over fist in any you know from from any perspective. That's a thirty year downtrend that you know you're starting to retest some of those lows from again back when you and I were wet behind the ears in this business. Um, so that that's you know that's a little bit more challenging, but I always look for areas where the sentiment. In fact, I mean, very simply, I just go through the Consensus Inc. data on a Tuesday. So I did this uh, yesterday, um, and look for where the extremes are in terms of the of the uh, the sentiment. Uh, and I do that because I want to know. Okay, well, maybe not for the yen or for the dollar specifically, but. Is there enough of a correlation between where the extremes are in sentiment that you're going to have these tertiary moves that will be impactful, right? And so the the two that's or really the three that stood out to me was um, the the bond bears. So there are plenty of bond bears out there. I think there are about twenty. I, I don't know if I get this number right. Twenty three, twenty two percent bond bears. So that's a relatively low number, um, which would imply that you know we we need to be careful of the reversion trade, which means lower yields, not higher yields. So that would be. Uh, welcome, uh, and the other part was the the uh, about seventy two percent bulls in the dollar, um, and so you know thinking about that, okay, well if we have a contraction in yields and we have a weak a weakening dollar, what will that mean for say equities and where have equities been? Um, maybe the tilt's been too far that we can have some some reversion. Uh, and I think that's where the cyclicality comes in, some of the discretionary names, some of the industrial names. Um, tech actually falls into more of a discretionary uh, discretionary part of the cycle for us in our work. And in fact, when we look at software and, and uh, we look at uh, semiconductors and the like, those are uh, oversold with uh, a high percentage of issues that are oversold within the constituents there. So, you know, I, I, I use sentiment to think about where the pain trade might be. And even if you're wrong and you don't end up with those reversals, the idea is that the payoffs tend to be a lot bigger, right? So what does that mean? Well, you know, if, if we're if we're believing that yields are going to go up and they go up 25 basis points, people are probably already positioned more or less that that's um, you know that that's not going to have a huge impact on your portfolio. If they're going to go to 450 and people are positioned for them to go to five or five five uh, you know 510, uh, that move to 450, even though it might be the equivalent, is going to be far more impactful because people will be offside. So we always look for that as an opportunity to put on optionality or at least have some exposure to things that people might not believe uh, could happen, but the narrative ends up being a lot 
uh, a lot stronger uh, with the idea or their people's confidence that if they're predicting the future correctly, uh, that we want to look at the other side. So um, the sentiment for the dollar would be the one that would really, really stand out to me. Obviously, if the Fed uh, proves to be on pause, I think the the, la- the latest figure I saw was uh, the market's expectation is another 25% at some point in the next six months for uh, for the uh, the Fed to raise rates. Uh, Neil Dutta, who's our economist and has done a great job in the last uh, 18 months with uh, with the recession or the failure of recession story, um, is in the camp that they're on pause for the remainder of the year. And if they go, they'll you know have to go in, in 24. So we'll see how that plays out. But uh, clearly, if that starts to shift, then you can have some uh, impact on those if interest rate differentials uh, that would then soften the dollar here uh, versus uh, the other currencies. Uh, you don't see it in the charts, um, but uh, the sentiment is the one that just kind of stands out to me that I want to be prepared for uh, some softening, which should prove to be bullish for uh, for equities in the near term. Mm. Uh, very good point. Um, now, in terms of then looking at sentiment in from a sector perspective, um, uh, you know, there are a couple of observations that I have in terms of, uh, you know, you know, GOP sentiment or GOP one sentiment is obviously a very, very um, uh, excessive. You know, at the moment, um, you know, what are your thoughts around? You know, I guess in a, in a macro environment where there's kind of not much happening, everyone can jumps onto the onto thematic trends and thematic you know investments. Um, and certainly we've seen that this year, right? I think after the big move on, on AI is now moved on to, it then moved on to GLP-1s. And now we're seeing, you know, uh, I guess uh, the the winners in, in I, I, I call them uh, the, the Chinese internet names that seem to be driving the narrative uh, around there. And you've got this huge bifurcation between some of the large cap in consumer discretionary versus the the mid and small cap in consumer discretionary, um, that theme seems to be playing around. Um, what are your thoughts around uh, you know some things you're seeing around around the kind of thematics? Well, you know we uh, we put a chart on Twitter yesterday and we had it in our survival guide where we were looking. Um, and this this takes us back to July. We're looking at the skew, uh, the difference between say a. Uh, uh, 25% delta, just think of delta in the option market as the probability that you're going to get to that strike price, right? So 25% delta to the upside versus the price of a 25% delta to the downside. So these are these are out of the money, you know, not quite lottery tickets, but certainly lower probability type of events. I think what's interesting, uh, we run this uh, on a daily basis. It's, it's something that's a long, long-term indication. In fact, over the next three months, I'd say it's probably worthless, but over the next 12 months, it actually tends to be pretty good. Um, we look at just what are the risk-adjusted returns for sectors and industry groups, and what have they looked like historically over a long period of time? And you need a lot of data to do this. I mean, the data that we have goes back to the to the 1960s, so you get enough cycles that you can kind of understand what the um, you know where the trees top out, if you will, and where you start to hit water if you're digging too low. And in healthcare, we're starting to hit water, right? I mean, it's kind of like okay, the the risk adjusted returns in healthcare are so god awful. 
um, that you would expect, you know, unless the world has really changed in a meaningful way that it's just, you know, healthcare will not be healthcare uh, as it was before, um, that there's probably some opportunities that are starting to develop, particularly in areas like biotech, particularly in areas like uh, equipment names. So I think that's still a little early, but if we're talking about innings, and I know that's more of a U.S. Uh, um, metaphor than it is uh, uh, British or European, uh, but if we're talking about innings of the downtrend, I'd say we're in the eighth inning of the downtrend. Is kind of in that zone where you look and say, okay, you know, I mean, what else is is there that can happen? And my risk-adjusted returns over the last three years have been so so horrific um, that I'll take the other side of this. And usually, we're in what we call our contrarian zone for that. Usually, um, the next twelve months tend to be good. The next three months. You know, there's not much there. So I, I think we're in the zone. What, the way that we play it or think about it just as an el- added element of safety is we look for relative performance. We look for relative performance to start to stabilize, to break out and give us some sign that there is this improvement. And then we just keep adding to it uh, as the relative performance continues to confirm uh, what those other other indications are starting to suggest. So uh, I think there's some opportunity developing. I don't know it's here right now, but I certainly uh, want to do the work now to be comfortable with the names that, um, you know, when that starts to to develop, when we start to see price action, the most important thing is that you don't ignore it, that when you see the price action that's confirming, instead of buying into the narrative, you say, aha, this is an opportunity um, that, you know, something somewhere out there is going to be better and there'll be brighter days ahead for these uh, these names. And so we're going to start to uh, lean into them. So in terms of sectors, obviously you talked about pharma, you talked about biotech. Um, what other sectors are falling into that category where they've just had a god-awful time and, uh, you know, they've they, they probably too early right now, you know, there's tax loss selling into the, into the end of the year. So, you know, they, they, they could be a down significantly lower. But um, you know what other sectors fall into that into that uh, camp? Uh, I'll let you go first, and I've got and I've got one that looks interesting to me. Well, REITs are we're doing it by sector, so REITs are, yeah. are falling into that camp now. The problem with REITs is that we don't have as long a history because they really were developed in the in the late 1990s, so the the history is a little bit more truncated there. Um, but certainly, I think the the idea that you know the world is for always going to work from home. Um, has probably hit its, you know, its maximum pessimism from from that perspective. Um, so I think there's some some interesting things there, but the charts are still, and the relative performance is still weak. So again, I think that's probably too uh, too early. One of the interesting things, um, you know, that we're seeing is in this correction or decline that we've had since the peak in in July August um, has been the persistent underperformance of defensives now. In our work, healthcare is defensive, so that's part of you know what you're seeing there. But defensives have underperformed cyclicals in a pretty uh, astounding and persistent way. In terms of seeing that within this overall correction slash consolidation in the equity markets, and that's not something that usually happens. And one of the reasons why we think this this yield um, this yield dynamic uh, continues to be important is you're starting to see this. Um, uh, this re-rationalization, if you will, in financial markets where people are uh, giving up on the Tina trade, which was there is no alternative. And so people were forced to buy equities in some way, shape or form instead of owning treasuries. And now they sit there and say, well, I'm getting three and a half percent in my utility names. Uh, and I'm hoping that I get, you know, three or four percent upside, but I'm not seeing it. 
uh, and I can just buy a treasury for 5%, or if I take a little bit more risk, I can get 65 to 7% in a corporate. Why in the hell wouldn't I do that? And I think they're saying, why the hell aren't I doing that? And they are doing it, right? So we're starting to see that migration away from staples, away from utilities. You know, people generally, I mean, I'm sure this did happen, but people generally aren't going to say, let me reallocate my bond portfolio into the QQQs. I mean, that's just not, you know, those are not apples for apples, but it does have some prudence to say, let me reallocate a portion of my bond portfolio into the XLU, right? And so you have seen these utilities, you have seen these staples perform much, much worse than you otherwise would expect. And we think that that really is that re-rationalization trade of, of what's happening. But in terms of the absolute sort of give-ups, healthcare is the best one, I would say um, the reach from a from a three-year sharp ratio perspective are are close and in the zone, but we don't have as much data to uh, to yet be pounding the table there. I guess another what are sector, your thoughts? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say another sector that, that just before I go on to, the, you know, one of the things that I, I, I find it quite interesting, the financials, you know, and you've been pretty bearish and being pretty right on this sector, the, the financials are not really showing us anything at the moment. They, they remain pretty, pretty awful. Yeah, um, the three-year sharps are not quite there yet. I agree, and and in fact, uh, I think of of the ETF flow work that we do to look at inflows versus outflows from a contrarian perspective. Uh, the banks are getting into that zone where you know people are are you know not just migrating out; they're running out <laughs> of those names, right? Yeah. So uh, I think you've got it from a from a flow perspective. We just don't quite have the things triangulated that we like to look at, but um, uh, certainly that would be. Um, that would be at the at the the, uh, the upper end of the list. One of the areas that um, uh, that from a contrarian basis is starting to pique my interest is anything to do with ESG or climate. <laughs> so so obviously we had a huge fad in 2020, 2021. Everyone was kind of in love with the various COP 21s and 22s and and. 48 by the time we get to it but but lots of um you know lots of huge amount of interest but those stocks in solar and wind and all those things have been absolutely decimated over the course of the last you know 18 months or so they've been not great investments at all um and part of my kind of contrarian sort of um antennae mm-hmm. is kind of looking at these sort of companies and starting to say well you know and, and the sectors starting to look at and saying well you know like yeah, could they be interesting at some point? You, you know, uh, they, they are quite detested. It's quite amazing. And also the flow data from ESG funds continue to show outflows. Yeah, so um, we would put those in kind of the same category as the SPACs, right? And that's, right. Uh, you know, that's rewinding the clock now by, what, two and a half years practically, where um, you had... Um, you know, kind of these promotional and narratives that didn't necessarily mesh with reality. Um, yet the liquidity function that was available in the, you know, in the marketplace gave, you know, buoyancy to anything, you know, no matter how big the hole was in the side of the ship, right? They were all able to float. Um, and as a just a general rule that, that we've had that we found to be certainly more, uh, more accurate than not is after you deflate a bubble, and the bubble doesn't have to be the entire economy, it can be, you know, it can be subsectors. In fact, it usually is subsectors of the economy that then kind of 
spill over into other areas of the economy. But wherever that bright white light was focused, uh, we historically look for the the value of those um, those sectors, if you will, to drop by about seventy percent. And once you get into that 70% zone, it can go more. Don't get me wrong. You can definitely go more. Uh, but once you get into that 70% zone, it starts to get interesting. And you, you shouldn't do it with a single stock because there's too much idiosyncratic risk there. But, you know, thinking of it in terms of, say, the Qs or thinking of it in terms of, say, um, you know, the solar names as a solar index, right? Sun is an example. Uh um, th- you know, those start to become more interesting because it's saying in aggregate, you're, you know, you're, you're really taking the air out of everything and you're taking it out in a pretty significant way. And usually the, what's amazing is the deflation of that bubble from peak, uh, peak valuation or peak price to that 70% level usually happens in less than two years. So it's not like it takes a long time. I mean, you can make a lot of money on the short side just riding those things. And once they kind of push that rock over the crest of the hill, it just, you know, carries its own momentum. Um, and I think we're in that zone for some of the solar stuff. There might be a little bit more to go, but uh, I think you're in that, you know, in that zone. SPACs certainly have done it, you know, in terms of uh, just absolutely creating rubble. And, you know, rightfully so for a lot of these names, they went bankrupt as they should. But, um, you know, when people start saying, I wouldn't touch a SPAC, that's where it starts to get more interesting because, you know, there are some that are out there because they were real, you know, viable companies um, probably earlier in the, in the uh, cycle than later in the cycle. But, um, you know, always be careful of painting too broad a brush or using too broad a brush to paint a, uh, um, a dark mark on, uh, on any industry or, or sector. Mm. Uh, This is quite interesting because um, you and I had this discussion, uh, I guess a couple of years ago, even, that you know can the leaders of the previous cycle be the leaders of the new cycle and that often just never happens right yeah but this yeah. time round given how much some of the say magnificent seven fell talking in some cases 30 40 50 percent plus and then rebounded and now showing leadership again is that how unusual is that i mean you know so we discussed it two years ago and we were you know, challenging ourselves and saying, well, look, can these companies ever come back given that they are, if you like, the busted flushes of that period? Um, and lo and behold, you know, I, 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 you know, I haven't looked at uh, the Magnificent Seven Indices or anything like that, but I'm guessing they were down on average probably about 50% from their peaks. Um, yeah, that's uh, you know, I mean, how unusual is this? Well, it's, uh, I, I think it is unusual. Um, when we looked at, and we did this by sector, right? So that might be too broad, but um, to have the sort of leadership characteristics, the ability of, of the previous leaders to become the leaders of the next cycle. Now, there was a little, little bit of a wrinkle here in that if you officially went on a year-over-year basis, you did transition the leadership from tech to energy, Right. And then back to tech. So right. depending on how you quantify it, you could say that it didn't happen, but you had to be in energy. But usually those names, to your point, kind of go dormant for an extended period of time. So it's not that quick that they come back. Um, there's about a 20% chance is what we found that those can can start to come back. So it's not zero, right. uh, but it's certainly not the um, the meat of the curve either. So uh, I think we're in a rarity, but you know rarities do happen. Um, the other part that I think is, is interesting um, obviously, the social media side of it, um, you know, uh, came back strong and and 
a lot of those name are in comp services now, which is you know kind of a a messy group in terms of looking at it historically. But um, you know, you did you did have a wrinkle coming out, which was in this phase, AI became more of a a theme than anything we saw in 2021, right? So there's always some little change in the nuance that it can't be exactly the cookie cutter thinking that we had that drove the previous cycle in the next cycle. It tends to be something with enough of a wrinkle to, uh, you know, to keep you on your toes. And I think that's probably what the curveball was in this, um, in this part of the cycle. Yeah, no, uh, very interesting. I guess the, the, the most relevant analogy for us is when, you know, some of the, the the busted tech companies from, you know, two thousand, you know, and you know they never came back, right? So in many, many, many cases, a new generation obviously came w- was born out of that period, uh, yep. but but they weren't leadership in say two thousand three, four, five, six, or seven. You know, that leadership only really came in uh, in the two thousand and nines and tens. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, if you, you know, specifically Microsoft, right, you think about the yeah, yeah. the DOJ and it went dormant for at least a decade. And really the only thing that's kind of kicked Microsoft back in has been has been the cloud. Yeah. You know, that's uh whether that was a you know luck or or skill, um, it's a different business today than it was when they were so dominant back in the late yeah. late nineteen nineties and you know, was able to reinvent themselves. Apple as well, right? I mean, Apple was um, was nowhere back in the 90s and early 2000s and then started to reemerge. So it can happen. It's an oddity, but that's, that's something that I think is endemic to tech, right? I mean, there's, a, there's an old saying, I mean, it's one of my favorite sayings, that in the long run, all tech companies uh, make toasters, right? So back in the day, a toaster was high tech and you know now it's a everyday appliance. And so uh, these are always sort of reinventing themselves. And what's technology today will be a toaster, in you know 25 years yeah no absolutely uh, so you know certainly well said um the um uh, in terms of kind of other sectors um you know i think your your you know, your thing is about defensive sectors have been the worst performing cohorts you know in 2023 which is not something anyone would have said in december 31st 2022 um uh, everyone's kind of positioned what one side um, what are the other sort of, I guess, sector nuances that you think, ah, oh, okay, that's interesting. What, you know, why is that happening? Well, the, on the downside, materials are, are, are cracking. And so that's important. That tends to be good for inflation. It tends to be, um, actually fairly good for, um, the, uh, the risks of a policy mistake, right? I mean, I think one of the biggest risks that we have is does the Fed, take short rates up too high and, you know, kind of take us over the, the precipice. And then they spend the next whatever, 12, 18 months trying to recapture that and stimulate things with lower rates. Um, you know, one of the interesting characteristics of that differentiation over the last uh, 65, uh, 65 years or so has been if materials are outperforming into the last Fed rate cut and then continue to perform after the last Fed rate cut, um, generally there's a policy mistake in the in the offering. And we're not seeing that here. We're seeing you know materials on a relative basis decline and and uh, and weaken, which um, you know if the Fed is willing to listen or global central banks are willing to listen, should be a good sign that um, you know there aren't these embedded pressures that are um, that are about to blow the the lid off the uh, off the pod. Um, so those are some of the things that we're watching, but I think that crack is certainly 
uh, is certainly helpful. At the same time, um, and maybe this becomes um, you know a little bit uh, yin and yang here. Um, you've got natural gas, which is broken out through three three bucks here in the states, and actually looks pretty good. The bulls in natural gas are about twenty nine percent, so that's a low number given a breakout, which means that there's probably some runway there. So uh, energy costs might be higher as we go through the uh, the remainder of the winter or as we get into the winter, we're not even there yet. Um, so it'd be one thing that uh, that we'd be watching as a potential mismatch there. Um, discretionary has held up okay. Um, it's at the margin, so we want to be uh, certainly mindful there uh, because that tends to be a very important uh, confirming indication for the overall equity market. So, uh, you know, we'd like to see uh, the home builders holding the uh, oversold conditions, which, by the way, they've held up so much better than I think anybody, myself included, would have ever expected given given rates. But uh, there's still enough trends, believe it or not. So uh, we'll watch those. The retail side, the restaurants are the weaker link there. So we want to be uh, mindful of those and watch for additional deterioration in uh, indiscretionary because I think that's going to be important. Um, and then obviously tech. Tech relative performance is still good. Um, it's the, most of those names are oversold here, kind of setting up nicely for a fourth quarter uh, run. And then whether or not we can punch through relative performance highs will be good news for 24. If we stall out, then I think we do have a transition uh, away from cyclicality into probably something that's a little bit more defensive as we go to 2024. But that is to be determined, as they say. Mm, no, absolutely. So um, maybe last question, Jeff. Um uh, industrials. Um, we had a we, when I met up with you in New York a couple of weeks ago. Um, you were sort of um, quite bullish on industrials. In fact, some of the results have come out were spot on in line with the charts that you had. But uh, what is your what are your things about what are your thoughts about industrials? Because obviously they're showing quite good trends um, uh, and remain quite positive. Um, what are your thoughts of that? And then maybe what's the underlying narrative do you think is driving that? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the narrative first. I think, you know, industrial shouldn't do well with a strong dollar. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, the, so the two macro factors that work against industrials are higher rates and strong dollar. I mean, I don't think I'm telling anybody anything they wouldn't kind of presume, but that is confirmed with the data. And they absolutely couldn't care less about what's happened to the dollar in the last you know, three months, right? It's just not even in their, even in their uh, bailiwick. Um, we're seeing weakness in transport. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And those look weak. The other thing that's amazing, and I just went through this with a client who's uh, a dedicated industrial PM. And we went through every sector. I mean, practically we went through every single stock in the Russell 1000. And it's amazing that within every single industry group and sub-industry group, I can give you a very bullish chart and I can give you a very bearish chart. You would have no... Um, no belief if you looked at those charts independently that they were in the same industry group. Because usually, in fact, it's a big part of how we think about the world. Um, birds of a feather tend to flock together. That which is driving the industry group will drive the worst company as well as the best company. Um, you know, and and we're just seeing um, absolute bifurcation in these um, in these industrials. So. Uh, the trends, the overall trends are still in place. They still look good. But uh, I think it's really on a case-by-case basis, even more so than on, a, on an industry group-by-industry group basis. So um, the farm uh, equipment names look weaker. The electrical equipment names look good. Um, it's really just a, a mixed bag. For now, 
uh, on an equal weight basis. They still, on a relative uh, strength basis, they're still an uptrend. So we're hopeful and um, you know believe that they can participate uh, in this uh, in this fourth quarter. Um, but when we look at those uh, three-year sharp ratios, which you talked about, you know, so bad for for healthcare that it's good, um, they're also very extended for cap goods. And so we want to be cognizant of that. That anytime we start to get breakdowns on a relative basis in those names, um, that instead of trying to search for the bullish narrative, which is usually so prevalent, let's start thinking about what uh, might be more of a top formation in those. So we'll keep an eye on that. Yeah. So. Uh... I guess the trend is your friend, as they say, as they go into Q4. Um, and um, um, and I think you probably say all the time, but it's only for the time being. But, uh, you know, certainly as we go into Q1, Q2, I think there's been some really interesting developments will, will start to appear, I think, in terms of the... Um, uh, in terms of some of the trends you talked about in terms of sectors and subsectors, and, and maybe some things get confirmed that we're kind of hinting at at the moment but don't really know that that's going to come through yet. So it's uh, all to play for in, a, in an election year. Any, any th- final thoughts on election years? Oh, boy, I'm not good with those. Um, uh, w- w- I mean, you know, as uh, as they say, a lot less here, but they definitely do on my trips to London and uh, across the continent. Uh, these are the two best candidates you guys have. <laughs> and I don't blame them. <laughs> That's the best you can do. Good Lord. Excellent. So, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for that. We, we, you know, with that comment, um, we'll, uh, we'll certainly, um, you know, I mean, for, for us as only as, as observers from outside of the United States, just looking at the circus of U.S. elections is just something that's just, you know, bewilderment in terms of what actually happens. But it's uh, it's uh, it uh, is going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. And I can't believe Trump is still, you know, I I even had people telling betting me that the Trump would win, uh, and I was like, whoa, okay, I hadn't hadn't really conceived of that, but. Yeah, lo and behold, you look at the numbers and, you know, um, he's, he's up. I mean, there's a contingent here that looks at what's happening as political theater and believes that, you know, a, a strengthens resolve. There's no doubt that there is a yeah. contingent here that thinks that this is, uh, you know, you can't, you can't beat them fairly, so uh, send them to the gallows. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Jeff, again, always a pleasure to, to speak to you. Uh, lots of uh, very interesting thoughts and ideas and content. Gonna keep up the great work uh, at Romac and uh, all the best to the team. No, thank you so much. And to you, happy holidays and uh, look forward to being with you again. Thank you. Thank you.